Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Today on Food Talk, Danny chats with Mark Zimring, who focuses on large-scale fisheries at the Nature Conservancy. They discuss how to better monitor fishing practices around the world. Then, Danny is joined by Niaz Dory, a community organizer and sustainability advocate who leads the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance and the National Family Farm Coalition. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nierenberg. So please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, It would really mean a lot to us. Uh, My friend Jamie in New Orleans, uh, I want to give her a little shout out because she's been uh, teasing me about me saying, uh, you know, it means the world to me, but it really does mean the world to me if you subscribe, rate, and review our our podcast. We, We get a lot more attention that way and we can amplify the great voices like uh, our guest today, uh, Mark Zimmering from the Nature Conservancy. Before I introduce Mark, I want to um, let you know that today is World Oceans Day. With everything else that's going on in the world, um, a lot of folks might have forgotten that, you know, there is a real need to focus on protecting our marine resources, our fisheries, um, because they provide so much food security, so much income for millions of people, and and can serve as a vehicle to improve equality and equity uh, in in coastal communities around the world. According to the United Nations, oceans serve as the world's largest source of protein with more than 3 billion people depending on oceans as really basically their only source of protein. More than 3 billion people depend on marine and coastal biodiversity for their livelihoods. So their jobs actually depend on on what oceans provide. And oceans are an important way to mitigate climate change uh, because they can absorb about 30% of carbon dioxide created by humans. Um, So you, you can... Uh, find out more information about World Oceans Day on the World Oceans Day United Nations website. And like I said, our guest is an expert on oceans. Um, Mark Zimmering is the director of the Indo-Pacific Tuna Program at the Nature Conservancy. He works to conserve large-scale fisheries worldwide with a particular focus on scaling up conservation and monitoring programs. So, Mark, I'm so glad you could be here today. I know it's a busy day. You're probably getting a lot of requests uh, for uh, quotes and everything on World Oceans Day, but thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So um, I'm wondering if you can expand, you know, I gave some statistics about the importance of oceans uh, for all of us, but are there any other points you'd like to raise about why oceans are so important and why protecting them is so important? I think you covered it well. Um, Oceans cover you know, more than three quarters of the planet. You talked about their role in, in climate stabilization. You talked about the remarkable diversity that they, that they house and the really important roles that they play in our everyday lives. Um, the majority of oxygen in every breath that we take comes from our oceans. Right. Um, and today, you know, our oceans are facing a, really a, a range of threats uh, from acidification and warming to plastics pollution that I think is, is all over the web. You know, my work is on fisheries and, and in the context of that, that threat uh, matrix, um, unsustainable fishing pressure really acts like a a threat multiplier um, that uses ocean resilience and its ability to recover from, from increasing threats and shocks. Um, So to give you a sense, about two thirds of all fisheries today are either overfished or can't sustain any more pressure. 
at wow. the same time that global protein demand is expected to rise by well over 50% as we look to, to mid-century, right? And, yeah. you know, I think if we're thinking about relying on farm tilapia or chicken, um, if we exhaust wild-caught seafood supplies, um, you know, I'd suggest that there are two fundamental problems with that view, and you mm-hmm. touched on them in, in your introduction. Um, one is that we've got to consider the equity implications of this, right? So as you said, about a third of the global population today relies on wild-caught seafood uh, as a really significant source of protein. Um, 10% of the global population is, is getting uh, its primary source of protein uh, from seafood. And most of those folks that are primarily reliant on seafood for protein are in coastal or small island developing states. These are the folks that are most vulnerable ultimately to climate change. Um, And these are the folks that lack the resources to either shift production to aquaculture or consumption to to things like chicken in the event that fisheries collapse. Right. Maybe the second thing I'd call out is that, um, look, wild caught seafood today um, isn't limited by scarce land and water resources. It doesn't require fertilizers and pesticides. And so if we can find ways to recover these resources and ultimately amplify their productivity, we're talking about one of the kind of cleanest, um, most sustainable sources of of food uh, for an increasingly hungry global population. Right. A lot of challenges and a lot of challenges for the communities you mentioned, these small coastal communities who really depend on, on marine resources and fisheries to sustain their livelihoods. What kinds of projects are you working on at the Nature Conservancy to help sort of mitigate some of these challenges? Yeah. Um, well, I reference that, you know, the majority of fisheries today are, are in bad shape. And when, when we kind of scan globally at what's going on, what we see is that in fishery after fishery after fishery, um, we're largely flying blind. Right. That, you know, we don't have the basic science data that we need to get the rules of the game right. And then we don't have the basic compliance data that we need to have confidence that fishers are, are playing by them. Um, right. It's what uh, Jane Lubchenco, who's the former administrator of, of uh, right. NOAA, refers to as the wild, wild wet. Um, yep. So I think the exciting thing is that we're seeing a range of new approaches and technologies come online that are helping to. Um, shine the, the bright light of transparency onto our oceans. Things mm-hmm. ranging from Global Fishing Watch, which is capturing vessel anti-collision um, uh, pings to, to understand who's out on the water and what are they up to, uh, to drones, um, from sail drone to wave gliders. One of the things that we're really focused on is what's called electronic monitoring. Um, it's essentially putting video cameras out on fishing boats because for a lot of fisheries, we need really granular information on what's happening at sea. So for example, are sharks and turtles coming into the boat? Are they being released with the best chance possible of survival? Um, right. Are folks discarding catch, right? Um, those are really important pieces of information, both for understanding the health of fisheries uh, and uh, ultimately for making sure that, that fishers are adhering to the, the rules that are in place. Absolutely. I think the good news, is this stuff's been around, right? It's been around for a couple of decades and, and we right. find ourselves at a really important inflection point where, you know, we're looking to ultimately take this stuff to scale, to global scale, covering all kind of large scale fisheries over the next decade 
And that still requires quite a lot of work. Um, but if we don't get there, um, the reality today is that, you know, if you're going to the supermarket or a restaurant as, as kind of things reopen, it is very, very hard to have confidence that the right. seafood products that you're buying and ordering were caught legally, sustainably, and, and in a lot of cases without labor abuses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we see this as the future. We think the technology is there, the price point is there. Um, and we're working with a range of country and industry partners ultimately to, to get this to scale. Amazing. Amazing. I'm glad you brought up the role of technology. There's a, a, a sort of newer company out there run by Mac, uh, Mark Kaplan, who used to be at Unilever called Invisible. And it's a company that's working to bring visibility to, to the global food supply chain, but they've started with, with seafood. And it's just, you know, they're using blockchain, they're using big data. It's such an interesting tool to create that traceability and transparency that that's needed to ensure that this is, you know, a socially just product that we're, you know, we're producing and, and selling at grocery stores or at markets all over the world. And it gives, I think, you know, young consumers who are more interested in the story of their food than ever before, the confidence to be like, okay, I know where this came from. I feel good about it. I'm willing to spend, you know, X amount of dollars more on it because it was produced in a sustainable way. Those kinds of things are really exciting. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you know, our aim is to mainstream this so that rather than it just appealing to a sustainability oriented demographic, right. it's part of the cost of doing business. And I think we're seeing a range of um, of traceability tools coming online. And where electronic monitoring fits into that is that today, most of the problems that we see in global fisheries happen out on the water. Yeah. And most traceability systems stop at the dock. So we've got to be able to link up those really robust traceability systems that are leveraging blockchain and all sorts of exciting technologies to what's happening on the water so that folks, again, can have confidence that, that what they're buying um, aligns with their, with their values. So just to give you like a, a really tangible example of how this touches down, I work quite a lot in, in uh, the Western and Central Pacific Ocean, and, and that's the heart of the global tuna fishery. So if you're right. eating yellowfin or, or big-eye tuna, uh, sashimi at a, at a, at a restaurant, the chances right. are come from that, that ocean. And long line fisheries involve stringing, uh, out 10 to 20 miles of line, dropping three to 4,000 hooks down below. Wow. And there are about a billion hooks a year dropped in the Western and Central, Central Pacific Ocean today. As much wow. as a third of the catch can be sharks, turtles, rays, marine mammals, seabirds. Sure. Um, and today we have independent monitoring on less than 5% of, of these longline vessels. Wow. So this is where I think electronic monitoring has real potential to come in, get eyes on the water, and then feed into these traceability systems that ultimately are finding their way to consumers so that they can connect uh, both with the fishers uh, that are producing their, their seafood products, but also um, ensuring that, that, again, you know, we're talking about legal, sustainable, ethical seafood products. Can you talk a little bit about the willingness of these boats and these seafood companies to have that kind of monitoring on board? I, I can imagine that it's been quite an uphill battle. <laughs> um, you know, I think too often fishers are, are painted as, um, as the enemy. Um, I think the reality is that there are a lot of folks out there working really hard, trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, mm-hmm. And 
it's not to say that everyone has embraced electronic monitoring, but it is to say that there have been a heck of a lot of early adopters. And I think they're yeah. doing it for different reasons. You know, in some cases, these are vertically integrated companies. So the companies that are supplying the seafood to, to retailers and restaurants, are, are also they also own the boats. And they may think that their captains and crew are doing things that don't align with company policy yeah. or maybe are stealing fish. Um, more positively, though, for example, in the U.S., we've seen fishers that, you know, have said, look, I'm doing the right thing um, and I want people to know that. And yeah. I also think that what I'm seeing on the water maybe doesn't align with what, you know, the government's fishery scientists are seeing. And I want the yeah. data that I'm collecting to be treated as, as valid and important. So right. we're seeing a diverse range of, of um, motivations for, for adopting electronic monitoring. Um, but in no fishery have we seen electronic monitoring break the bank. It hadn't put anybody out of business, you know, and I right. think that's what's exciting. And generally, once, once folks get it on the boat, um, you know, they start to see the value in it. And, and I think, you know, we see a lot of promise in that. Right. I, I imagine it's one of those things that eventually pays for itself because consumers have confidence, you know, uh, the fishers and, and the seafood companies can use that as a selling point. Um, and I, I also, I, you know, I appreciate your point about how fishers get blamed because on the farming, on the crop and livestock farming side of this, you know, ranchers and farmers get blamed for so much and, you know, so much that is often out of their control. Um, and, and I think the more that we can all understand that, you know, there's no there's rarely any villains when we're talking about these things. There's it's not very black and white. It's it's it, it tends to be very gray. And so the more that, you know, we can understand, you know, just like farmers want to save their land for future generations, fishers want to make sure that there's you know, that they have business, you know, two years, 10 years, 50 years down the line. Yeah, I, it's well said. And I think we've got to look, particularly when we look to international fisheries at, at socioeconomic security of, of fishers and, and fishing communities. You know, these are very difficult conditions. Um, and it's very difficult for them to think 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line. Right. Um, so how do we create the, the, both the, the management frameworks, but also um, take a more holistic approach to making sure that the, the folks that are ultimately out on the water providing food for the world um, are in a position where, you know, they've got basic food and, and um, you know, food security and, and socioeconomic resilience. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I want to go back for a second because you you uh, said something that I think is very important that doesn't get enough attention, that there's not enough sort of data uh, on what's happening with marine resources. And that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a fisheries person. My expertise is on land and, and with farmers and, 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 you know, crop production. Why, and, and there's a lack of data and, and, and that, you know, kind of, uh, agriculture as well and, and food system work. Why so little data and why so sort of, um, you know, not a, a lot of science, uh, why is there still a lack of, of, of data and science on these issues? Is I guess what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah I, one of the nice things about you know working in a terrestrial environment is you can go out and count how many you know animals there are, right? You can right. count how many cattle are on an acre of, of land. With fisheries, um, it's a much more difficult reality, right? You know, we're we're moving targets, guesses, <laughs> and and there's a huge amount of dynamism in in these uh, environments. And so, you know, first I would say it's hard. Um, but second is that we really for far too long um, have not done well enough 
around um, basic data collection, right? So I referenced yeah. the huge kind of data gaps in terms of independent data collection um, aboard fishing vessels in, in the Western and Central Pacific Ocean. But that applies to, to other oceans and other fisheries as well. And, you know, I would call out that as part of the kind of response to COVID, we've seen a real relaxation of, of the use of traditional data collection assets, which are human observers aboard vessels. Yeah. Um, right. So fishing hasn't stopped. You know, we see fishing now, you know, back to nine, over 90 percent of, of kind of the level at which it was before COVID. But we've essentially taken all of the independent monitoring assets off of vessels. And it's one of the reasons we're working so hard on electronic monitoring is yeah. that electronic monitoring doesn't get sick. Um, it can't get co-opted, corrupted. It can't sure. get threatened or murdered. Um, and, and, and these are realities, right? Um, within the last 10 years in the Pacific, we've seen, um, double digit numbers of observers disappear or, or be killed aboard fishing. Wow. That's incredible. That's, that's not in the news very often, is it? That should be more publicized. Yeah. So, you know, I think the reality is we, we just haven't prioritized it, right? Budgets are always constrained. Um, Or just there are those realities, but we no longer have the luxury of of not prioritizing it. You know, these these stressors are coming, and we've got to make these resources more resilient uh, as as we face increasing numbers of shocks. Absolutely, and and one of those shocks, obviously, is what's been happening with. Um, uh, COVID-19. And, you know, I've been reading about a lot of seafood waste during this time because of disruptions in supply chains. I'm wondering if you can talk a little about that and the impact that, that the pandemic is having on, on, you know, both small scale fishers and, and some of these larger seafood companies. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you know, the terrestrial space really well. And I think the same supply chain disruptions that we've seen leading to farmers plowing back in huge amounts of, of, Crop production uh, in the U.S. Um, has led to similar things in in the seafood space. We've seen, particularly with fresh and frozen seafood, that has been historically heavily reliant on the restaurant and food service market. We've seen huge supply chain disruption. Um, and there there was an article in the New York Times a, a few weeks ago about how fishers are seeking to to rapidly pivot to direct sales to consumers. Right. Um, in order to, to address those. And, you know, I think these are really, really challenging time for, times for folks, but right. they also, you know, I think create some real opportunity. As you said, there's a, there's a, a set of consumers that want to be closer to producers that really want to understand what's happening out on the farm, out on the ranch, out on the water in these fisheries. And this, this kind of deep structural um, disruption is creating new opportunity for mm-hmm. connections. I think the other thing I'd say is that with, with restaurants and, and food service really shut down or significantly curtailed, um, grocery retailer market power has pretty dramatically increased. Um, yeah. And I think one of the things that will be very interesting to watch is whether that increased market power translates um, into these grocers moving from pre-competitive supply chain asks um, to realization of, of those uh, sustainability commitments uh, mm-hmm. and, and aspirations. So in other words, do they leverage that increased market power ultimately to drive on the water change? I mean, it's so interesting because one of the things that we've been talking about, you know, on this live cast for the last two months now is really 
or more than that, I guess, 85 days. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the, the, this is an opportunity if, if we use it well to reset how things are done and to reset the food system. And you're, I mean, what you're describing is sort of how do we reset, you know, the way, the way we've been practicing, you know, uh, extraction of seafood from our oceans. You know, there's been a lot of illegality. There's been a lot of, you know, commitments made, but not adhered to by governments and policymakers. So th- there, there is a, an opportunity. You, you wrote in an email um, before, you know, when we were prepping for this, that bottom line, it's very hard to have confidence. And in many cases that seafood products have been harvested legally, sustainably, and without labor abuses. And I think that's, you know, going back to that point, given everything that's going on in the world with this, you know, systemic inequality that's taken place when we're talking about the food system or, you know, um, you know, systemic racism, there's a lot that can be done to really improve how, how fishers are treated, how, how the, the over, you know, the processing uh, of, of seafood, you know, those workers, how they're treated. There's a lot that can be done here. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely right. And, you know, we, we should be careful, um, you know, to recognize the pain that, that folks are experiencing right now, right? I mean, COVID is, has um, created huge amounts of, of pain. And, and um, at the same time, um, look, we've got to take advantage of, of these opportunities that, that, that kind of the, the, the COVID has created. Um, and we've got to take advantage of them in, in ways that address a bunch of the structural problems that, that you've outlined there. Given that it's World Oceans Day and this is such an opportunity to shine a spotlight on the importance of oceans and the importance of fishers, uh, what are some recommendations that you would give, you know, your neighbors or your family members or, you know, the, the viewers and listeners who are hearing this today? How can they make more sort of sustainable choices? How can they, you know, incorporate that social justice angle into their food purchases? Yeah, I, I guess there are there are two um, ways that I would respond. First uh, is is a pretty simple one, which is to ask ask questions at restaurants with your local fishmonger at the grocery store. Even if you don't know, you know what the right answer is, just asking sends an important signal to the marketplace that this is something you care about. Right. The second piece of it is that there are a range of of sustainable seafood. Um, uh, labeling organizations, uh, and I would point to, to three of them as, as perhaps the kind of best known and, um, and widest spread. Uh, one is uh, Seafood Watch, which is administered by the, the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Another is the Marine Stewardship Council, um, and that's a blue check mark that you see on seafood products. Uh, and then the last is Fair Trade, um, and Fair Trade uh, is, is working across. Uh, commodity verticals, as as you know, um, and is increasingly focused on um, on on the fishery space. So those are three labels to to look for. But again, I think asking questions is a really really important signal. Half the time, even when I go to restaurants, I don't know what the right answer is. Right. Right. You know that asking is, is going to send that signal. Absolutely. And we'll have those resources available on our website, foodtank.com. For poli- oh, we have a question from uh, a viewer. How safe is the world for independent researchers in terms of climate investigation? Do they face threat? So I think they're asking, you know, your, your, your people like you who are out there in, in the field or not in the field, but in the ocean, um, you know, investigating these things. Do you feel threatened by, you know, 
uh, what you know, you mentioned sort of the 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 folks who have disappeared. You know, th- those kinds of things. Do you, have you felt threatened in the past? You know, I haven't, and I think it's a great signal about you know white male privilege and and, and Western mm-hmm. privilege in some sense. I mean, I think we really need to focus our attention on those on those frontline leaders, the folks that are putting themselves at risk every day, either to go out and collect data or to campaign against um, inequality and, and, and abuses. Um, and, you know, what, what we try to do is make that space safer for them. Um, right. But I have not personally been at risk or, or felt that risk. That's great. And by amplifying their work, you know, it, it gives it more legitimacy and gravitas. And that's that's fantastic. I, I wonder what your message is for for policymakers. And I, I know the Nature Conservancy is not, you know, that's not not necessarily you're not you're not lobbying and you're not telling policymakers what to do. But I'm sure, you know, given that this is an election year and such an important election year, what would you want policymakers in the United States and also around the world to know about uh, the you know World Oceans Day, the importance of our, our our marine ecosystems. Yeah, I mean it's it's easy to ignore our oceans, right? So much of what happens happens underneath the water, and so it's it's hard to understand what's happening, and it leads to this bias towards underfunding marine management. Um, and the problem is that the bill is coming due for that, right? We have got to invest in managing these systems for resilience. Because they are critical ultimately to to our well being um, and and the global biodiversity. And so, while it may seem like a short term opportunity to save money to underinvest in fisheries management, it has huge long term costs. Right? We're losing fifty plus billion dollars a year due to poor fisheries management. Wow. So it's an economic choice, and it, it, that's you know, if if policymakers don't care about anything else, they care about the economic bottom line. <laughs> It's certainly a, it's a moral choice, but but you know, dollars tend to speak in the world today. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, more than than people's voices often. But no, that that's that's good to know. And I I think the more that organizations like the Nature Conservancy and so many others who are working to support sustainable, so socially just seafood practices, you know, the the work being done to amplify their work is really incredible. So I, I applaud you and TNC for really working so hard on this. Given everything that's going on in the world, global pandemic and, and everything else, I, I wonder um, who is inspiring you the most right now? I guess um, I would I would say it's a what is inspiring me. I mean, I think the events of the last weeks, well, in some sense, um, deeply, deeply disturbing, um, have also been really, really inspiring. Um, they're a reminder to me that societal change is, is not inevitable, um, but it's also not linear. Um, and that's a great reminder to me that we've got to be ready with the vision, with the proven approaches and strategies um, to realize that vision, and ultimately credible pathways for going to scale around the change that we want to see in the world, around food systems, around, around equity. Um, right. Whether that's whether that's delivering on the promise of, of racial equality or mitigating the threat of, of, of climate change or or driving sustainable, resilient global fisheries, we've got to be ready when we get the moment. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Mark, you've just been a pleasure to talk to you. For folks who want to find out more information, they can go to nature.org. Any other websites you want to give out? 
That's the one. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy World Oceans Day. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Muirenberg. Thanks so much, Mark. Please take care and stay well. And you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Today is World Oceans Day, so both of the guests that we've had today will focus on how fishers and communities are working to preserve marine resources, protect uh, nutrition and food security, and improve equity and equality in, in uh, the, our marine ecosystems. Um, today, I'm really excited to chat with Niaz Dori, the coordinating director of the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance and the executive director of the National Family Farm Coalition, bringing together food production on both land and sea. Previously, she spent uh, more than 30 years as a community organizer advocating for environmental and social justice. Um, I first met Niaz when she uh, uh, spoke at a a food tank summit a few years ago. And I'm so inspired by her work because she's one of those people, you know, a a lot of us who work in in food or or agriculture are experts, you know, either on land or sea. We're not both. And she just really impresses me with her ability to, to combine both of those areas because they're so important. Um, for uh, protecting not just the the food security and improving nutrition, but for protecting the livelihoods of fishers and 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 farmers and ranchers and others who are working so hard to make sure that we're all fed. Um, and, and it's just a very holistic approach that you don't see done very often. So I'm probably your biggest fan. <laughs> um, and, and I think your background just lends so much to these kinds of conversations. So thanks for being with me uh, today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the kind words. I'm wondering for our listeners and viewers who don't know about either of these organizations, if you can give them a snapshot of each one, just sort of your 30 second, this is what I do and this is who I am. Uh, Sure. Both organizations have a similar vision, which is that if we're going to really achieve our social, economic, ecological goals when it comes to either land food or seafood, we really got to look at our um, small and mid-scale part of the system, mm-hmm. whether it's on land and, or whether it's at sea, and that there is, in fact, a difference between family farmers and industrial agriculture. There's a difference between small-scale, mid-scale seafood f- fishermen and industrial, what I call aqua business or, agric- or um, uh, industrial fisheries. So our mission really in both cases is to fight against corporate domination of our food system while lifting up the voices of those community-based food providers. And, and lifting up and amplifying those voices is, is often very difficult because of that corporate influence over the food supply on both land and in sea. What kinds of tactics do you have for, you know, working with farmers and fisher folk to make sure that their voices, you know, whether it's through their own organizations or individually are heard? Well, on the fishing side, which is where I have the longest um, experience in terms of working on seafood versus fish versus land food, uh, really one of our tactics was to join forces with family farmers because very few people, very few organizations, as you noted, had really looked at seafood through the food system lens. And um, so one of the first things we did when I came on board NAMA as the coordinating director was join the National Family Farm Coalition as its right. first non-farming organization. 
that was one way for us to really drop the parallels between what's happening on the water and what's happening in, in rural communities, whether whether they're a coast a coastal community or or an inland community. And uh, the, in in some cases, even we're fighting even the same corporate domination, right. the same companies, right. whether it's Tyson at sea or Tyson on land, and so. We, we do that coming together was a core strategy in lifting up the voices of, uh, of community-based fishermen. The other is to really let them speak for themselves. I very rarely um, appear in these situations as me because it's I'm only a vehicle for making sure they have the resources they need. So we try very hard to make sure they have the tools, the confidence, the resources, to speak for themselves and not have to rely on anybody else to really um, uh, be their their mouthpiece. And finally, I think it's uh, that resource piece is really important. The small and mid-scale parts fishing and farming industry are very under-resourced. The large-scale mm-hmm. industrial scale dominate the political system. They dominate the market. They dominate public relations. And so to turn over every rock to be able to find them the resources they need and to make sure they could join forces with other movements. That's another really key tactic. Whether you're working on social justice, environmental justice, economic justice, uh, we've really made a point of making sure that those movements recognize the land and seafood movements in themselves and vice versa. That's incredible. And I think obviously that's especially important right now as we're seeing um, really valid demonstrations and, and uprisings take place to to bring all of these movements together and to show that they they have so many similarities. They're facing so many of the same challenges. I'm wondering if you can spe- speak specifically to the, the biggest challenges both uh, farmers and, and fishers face right now. Uh, and then I want to get into COVID-19 because that's a, a obviously disrupting so many supply chains, you, you know, uh, at the small and medium sized level. But what, from your perspective, are the biggest challenges that farmers and fishers face? Well, <clears throat> there is the public perception that it doesn't really matter uh, who you're supporting on either side. And there is also the public perception that if you're support, you know, I saw the headlines today, for example, that people are worried that the, um, all the aid money going to farmers and people don't distinguish between mm-hmm. farmers and agribusiness. People don't distinguish right. between industrial seafood systems and the people who fish. And I think that's the biggest challenge, this tendency to generalize, this tendency to um, paint everybody with a broad brush. I think that's even playing right. out in our society in general, where we're making a lot of assumptions about people based on what we think we know about them. Sure. And that's certainly true. Uh, with farmers and fishermen. And of course, that translates into a lot of other challenges, whether it's access to markets. People think as long as you have uh, food in the supermarket, farmers must be uh, doing well. As long as you're having seafood served to you, fishermen must be doing well. And also people, uh, the, the issue of price and economic justice is another big challenge. Yeah, where People make the assumption that a bigger chunk of what they're spending on food is actually trickling down to the farmers and fishermen, when in fact it isn't. We've been talking about fishing and farming in the red for a number of years because, as we know, the percentage that farmers and fishermen get paid uh, it doesn't even uh, of your food money doesn't even add up to them 
meeting, even coming close to their cost of operation, right. adding some money to their bank account so they can pay for clothes for the kids or books for school or mortgage of their home. Right. So those are really some of the biggest challenges right now. Absolutely. And I think that awareness point and public perception I, is such a valid and interesting point. I wonder with COVID-19, where people saw, you know, a lot of Americans saw for the first time in their lives, empty grocery store shelves, you know, they flocked to CSAs or food subscription services. Do you think now that that awareness, you know, of how important small and medium-sized farmers and fishers are is 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 changing that now maybe Americans as as, as eaters and consumers get it? I sure hope so. I think, you know, I, I, um, I've been saying, I don't know how many more viruses we need to name after animals to really begin to curb our tendency to want to keep them in confinement in such high numbers. And right. I can't help but, um, you know, I know that there has been a lot of debate about whether or not the virus, this particular one, where it originated from. But honestly, to me, it doesn't matter. It's sort of the precautionary principle. We know right. that holding these animals in large concentrations lead to consequences. For the animals and for us, it's really, it's becoming a public health issue. And so factory farms, whether it's on land or at sea, really need to um, be addressed, factory farming on land or at sea. And so, um, and I'm hoping that people are starting to put two and two together. When as NAMA, we piloted the community-supported fishery model, you know, stolen from the community-supported agriculture um, okay. movement, I, I say this all the time, I could almost feel the uh, patronizing pat on the head from people, you know, that's really cute, you know, but how is that going to really feed people? But guess who's been feeding people? It's been right. these community-supported fisheries. It's been community-supported agriculture. It's been even the industrial farms, the larger farms, have had to resort to community-based resources right. in order to make sure that their animals aren't mutinized or, or they're not burying their crop. And this is what I want people to remember. I want them to remember that there was a store down the street that not only had prepared foods, but toilet paper and milk and whatever else you needed, that there was a farm actually not too far away from you that delivers to your house, that there was a fishing operation not too far away from you that will actually ship to your home. These are the things we need to take away from this, um, this crisis that we're all experiencing. And we need to remember that in order to prevent this from happening again, we need to support those community-based operations, whether they're the small stores and bodegas around the corner or the small food providers of farmers and fishermen. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I I think, you know, sort of the veil has been lifted for many consumers. And I hope that remains true six or 18 months from now when we're on the other side of this. But at the same time, Niaz, we need policy changes. We need policymakers to become more aware. And I don't know, I I mean, you're you're deeper into these things than I am, but I'm not seeing that sort of realization that we're seeing from some consumers and from some communities among the policy community. I think that's our job, you know, collectively as food system advocates to turn this into what it needs to be, which is long-term change, to take this out of this, momentary response in crisis and make it the normal that we want to we want to see emerging out of this moment and policymakers right now they're using the excuse of needing to deal with the crisis and and i hear you know over the 
25, six years that I've been working on fisheries issues, we've been asking for, for systemic change over and over again. And each time we're told, well, that's really a good strategy, but we're dealing with a crisis right now. We have excused every, we have neglected every opportunity for making long-term yeah. change and using the excuse that we're dealing with the crisis for too long and not connecting the dots that our inability to see long-term changes is what's causing one crisis after another, after Absolutely. another. So this is the moment. Those of us who are engaged in food system policy, you're right. You know, the, this, the current system, the chinks in the armor are left for all of us to bear. And I feel like we are the David and we need to utilize our nonviolent tools to aim that rock just strategically at this moment because this is the time to make those changes happen. Regionally here in New England, we have some vehicles, for example, Food Solutions New England, which is a six-state effort, is talking about regional policy change. We have a farm bill coming up ahead of us. We have a fish bill reauthorization that is um, afoot. Um, There has been a, a push for industrial aquaculture to open up in our oceans, and unfortunately the administration signed an executive order to expedite that. That, those are our opportunities to lift our voices and say no more industrial uh, chapter of animals at, at sea or, or uh, on land. Even if the president has signed an executive order, we can refuse to buy the products. Right. We demand those policy changes in the upcoming reauthorizations of legislation. And then we have local opportunities. It doesn't all have to be federal. Sometimes the trickle up is what ends up leading to some of the long-term changes that we want to see. So here in Massachusetts, it's the Commonwealth. People can act on a very local level, and then that leads to state change, which can then lead to compacts happening by states, which then builds power to push for uh, legislative change in a concentrated and a concerted fashion. So I think this is our opportunity. We need all the Davids to, to link arms together at this moment. Absolutely. I love that. I love that image. That's a great one. I I also am very interested in this point about trickle up, because I think what has happened over the three and a half years, for obvious reasons, is that state and local governments have had to take on these challenges, you know, whether it's about climate change or food loss and food waste, and build their own sort of uh, policies, you know, food procurement for schools and and hospitals is, is one example. What are what are ways that you are are seeing um, local sourcing of, of, you know, both what farmers are producing uh, and, and what fishers are, are, are producing, you know, going into, you know, like I said before, hospitals or schools. How can we encourage more of that? Well, we've been working really hard to build partnership with uh, like-minded organizations that can make that happen. Our, I can't say enough about our partnership, for example, with Healthcare Without Harm that has introduced us to the healthcare sector. Here in New England, it was Healthcare Without Harm partnership that led to the pilot programs that um, at the University of Vermont Medical Center was the early adopter of buying regional seafood. And not only were they able to, by doing that, support the local seafood system, but also to reduce their carbon footprint dramatically, which is something that the most um, food system advocates are asking for. I remember uh, I was given a talk somewhere and after, and I used the example of University of Vermont's uh, carbon footprint outcome uh, uh, in my talk. And somebody came up to me and said, I'm the new facilities director at Boston Medical Center. And my first task 
to reduce our carbon footprint. And what I'm hearing from you is the food we buy can be one of our fastest tracks to doing that. Relocalizing, re-regionalizing our food system is a big opportunity for us to address climate impacts of our food system and climate change. And, and then uh, similarly, working with Real Food Challenge and Uprooted and Rising to change the food that's served in our higher education, working with uh, the National Farm to Cafeteria Network to make that higher education and healthcare. In that case, it was a trickle-down um, approach because what we knew was that K-12 uh, budgets really prevented them from being able to uh, live up to their aspirations for what, sure. what they could serve. And by beginning to work with the healthcare sector, regional facilities were able to be built that were aggregating from small and mid-scale uh, seafood providers in this case. And that increased the amount of supply from local boats so that even the universities and the K through 12, uh, look at Martha's Vineyard, for instance, you know, we have Jenny DeVivo, who is really kicking butt over there, serving her students, you know, local seafood and local land food. You know, she just won on an island, but she is, uh, she's not secluded. You know, she's not isolated in the sense that she's part of this bigger movement of even changing the food that's served in facilities where the budget is really low. So these right. partnerships have been really key in uh, making sure that the system is shown that it can change and it doesn't, and their excuses are really just excuses and they right. just want to change. And now it's time for that change to take place in a more long-term basis. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that point up about excuses that, you know, we're always hearing about what can't be done because it's too, you know, it's too complicated to work with small farmers. It's too complicated to to source regional seafood, et cetera. But these things, you know, what we've seen with COVID and what we've seen with the work that you, you've been doing with your partners before COVID is that it's not that hard. You can do it. You just have to build those those uh, alliances and, and, and work, you know, closely with other groups with what... It, yeah, and I think it, it's such a great model for other groups going forward. That's right. I tell this story all the time. When we um, uh, began working, Boston Children's Hospital, it's a really good story. We um, were visiting, I was visiting the hospital and I noticed that on their menus, they have the name of the farm, where the lettuce okay. came from, where the cheese came from, where the chicken came from. And I've always said, you know, if you care about where your pigs and your chicken and your lettuce came from, you should care about where your seafood comes from, where your fish sure. comes from. And so I, I asked their food system person, so where's the name of the boat? And nobody ever told us to do that. And we were hosting uh, an event we call Seafood Throwdowns at Boston Children's Hospital in their cafeteria. And uh, I didn't want to be the one who's saying, you're doing it all wrong. So I told them, so just do one thing differently. Ask yeah. for the name of the boat. They went to their distributor asking for the name of the boat and the distributor wouldn't give it to them. Now, we're okay. always been told that changing institutional purchasing policies takes forever. It's, you know, these things take a lot. They change distributors overnight because they wow. suddenly realize if they can get the name of the farm, why can't they get the name of the boat? That was a amazing. really important question to ask at the right time, much like the Boston Medical Center's person suddenly, you know, 
the person at the right time with the right question and the right solution led to food system change in Boston Medical Center with Boston Children's Hospital, the same thing. So we're told these things are hard. There is a, a fisherman that I fished on a boat with one time taught me a phrase that I think um, it applies to life. He said, it's a big ship. you got to overcompensate. We're often told that these institutions are big institutions. we got to give it its time and overcompensate. But those lessons taught me that things change can happen overnight and right. it's our job to bring it to their attention and make that change happen and, and make the make the opportunities seem really seamless and easy. That's fantastic. That's so inspiring. That's not only a good a story for, you know, institutions to hear, for policymakers to hear, but other organizations who are trying to follow your lead and build those kinds of partnerships and and bring about more awareness of what farmers and fishers are doing. That's that's incredible. And I think, you know, we're going to hear more stories like that as 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 the food system changes. You know, we we talk about this constantly. I, I repeat this almost on every live cast. That if we go back to the way things were, this will be a lost opportunity. Opportunity. You know, COVID has been a, a terrible tragedy for, you know, so many reasons, but there are also so many opportunities to really build something new here. And I think you've laid the foundation for that. And it's really incredible to see. Well, it's, uh, we've laid a foundation. It certainly is not a solo journey. And this has been a, a work that fishermen and farmers have visualized and talked about for decades. I think uh, what we've been able to do was to get it beyond the talk and make them realize that we can actually make those visions come to reality. You know, we, we can we don't have to just keep spinning our wheels. We just have to be brave enough to fight the battles nonviolently and to call people when they are putting excuses in our path and they're building uh, artificial obstacles in our paths. And I think that's the part that is often discouraging and most folks don't want to uh, don't want to deal with those obstacles. And when we um, first piloted the community-supported fisheries models, uh, one of the biggest things we heard were from fishermen who had just been hit with one obstacle after another for so long, they thought there is just no way. Nobody's going to want to buy this. Nobody's going to want right. to pay their price. Nobody's going to want to eat this. It was a lot of nobody, nobody, nobody. And we had to really prove that these obstacles were surmountable. And now we have the local catch network that represents community supported fisheries and other values-based seafood businesses, mostly in North America, but also on other continents. And they are becoming a support network for each other so that they can keep nurturing these new business models. And those are the businesses that today are feeding people within right. the context of COVID. And they can continue to feed people post this moment in the next phase of life that we're going to collectively experience. Absolutely. And I and I, I like the term artificial obstacles because it's true. You see, oh gosh, I don't know what to I that that looks too big, that mountain is too big, that wave is too big. But when you sort of dissect it, it's it's a lot of smoke and mirrors a, a lot of the time. And so once you realize that you can make real change. That's right. And I think the key for us has been um two things, <laughs> two, two uh slogans, if you will. Um one that we heard first from the Movement for Black Lives, which is to uh, work at the speed of trust. We really work intentionally so that when we are, we are um, approaching these obstacles, people can trust that we're lending a hand in earnest. We're not just right. saying, 
pushing people towards a barrier. And so really those intentional relationships that are going very slow, even at um, the cost of some being frustrated uh, with us. Um, so that's a really important approach. And, and uh, the other, you know, I, I actually got a little, just um, lost my train of thought because okay. the moment um, the moment I mentioned the words, you know, movement for Black Lives is just getting. Sure. Of course, no, I, I, yeah, it's a very emotional time, and you know, folks like you and the organizations you work with, building those relationships is is what really matters right now to make sure that we can get through this time of 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 you know crisis and make sure that on the other side that we've we've really worked to build uh, those important partnerships that that folks can really work together that they trust one another that we continue to be the the Davids that you mentioned whether we're we're fighting you know food insecurity or we're working for better equality and 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 and, and you know, erasing the systemic racism that has existed for so long that needs to end. So I, your emotion is, is I feel it so much too. And I, I just really, again, appreciate that bringing that into the conversation is so important. Absolutely. I, um, I think people have this assumption about um, rural communities, farmers and fishermen that, um, uh, they're isolated, a bunch of white racist people living out in rural communities, and um, and they may be white, they they may be uh, living out in rural communities, but um, uh, we have been spending a lot of time working with these communities so that they understand that the root of the the injustice they experience is really rooted in the racism in our food system. Right. Two years ago, when uh, we took off on the America the Bountiful tour, we um, had a real eye-opening experience. You know, we stopped at the first place where the first slave ship landed in South Carolina. We had the opportunity to visit the um, National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, the yeah. Freedom Writers Memorial. And we chose that geographic uh, trajectory intentionally so that we could learn. It could deepen our understanding. We had the pleasure of stopping in Canada, North Carolina, with Reverend Joyner and his church, a small African community, African-American community, working really hard to feed themselves. When we arrived in some of the places where you assume are just uh, racist white rural communities, one of the first questions we were asked is, how did you get here? What route did you take? When we explained our route, we got to the conversation around race and equity through geography. It really softened the conversation. And we left most of those conversations feeling like we need to dispel this notion that the people who lead our work and who we represent and serve are part of the problem. They're not. They are trying. They the problem that they're experiencing is this marginalization that they've been feeling for a long time, rooted in the same po- bad policies, and uh, and they feel unheard. That was so our job absolutely. to make them feel heard. 
absolutely so eloquently said, Niaz. I think that just really, you know, boils it down to what what is happening in the United States right now and what has been happening and what we have to overcome. And I think that speaks of, you know, the intentionality that you were mentioning before, having these really intentional conversations and relationships and building these, you know, human-centered ways of, of, you know, uh, getting getting going forward and and solving these problems it's it's really i i mean it's the only way i think we can work now given all that is happening and it it it's it's incredible um I, I want to ask you, you know, uh, before we end is, you know, you get to work with so many amazing people, both on land and in sea, uh, in the sea. I'm wondering who is inspiring you the most right now as you watch all of these different things unfold in the United States and, uh, and, and all around the world. I, I really can't name a single one individual um, because it probably changes every day. <laughs> probably changes. Uh, uh, I have... Um, what I call promontory dreams. I, I see things in my dreams that are often real the following wow. day. And wow. um, sometimes that's what inspires me. Sometimes it's something I'm reading that inspires me. I don't think there is one person because honestly, um, it's a collective effort, even when it comes to inspiration. And uh, I'm not a big fan of a cult of personality element of, sure. of, of this work. And so I'm thankful for everyone who has inspired me and continues to inspire me because without them, I don't know how I would wake up and be inspired to do this work every day. It's hard work. It's work that takes a lot out of you physically, spiritually. And, and if it wasn't for those decades of inspirations from folks since my youth to today in my late 50s, I, I, don't, I couldn't name all of them. That's wonderful. And I mean, you're so inspiring. So I know people who are listening to this and watching this will come away with a lot of, of, of inspiration for moving forward. I want to make sure folks know how uh, to get in touch with both organizations. They can go to www.namanet.org. That's N-A-M-A-N-E-T.org. And then they can go to www.nffc.net. We'll have both of those uh, websites available at foodtank.com and other information about how to get in touch and be inspired by Niaz's work. Thank you so much for joining me. You are truly um, somebody I admire and have admired from afar for a really long time. So I appreciate your time. Please stay well and safe. Um, I hope folks will also join me on our next episode when I'll be uh, chatting with uh, Chef Mark Murphy. Niaz, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You stay safe as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system. 